Hey, this is Sydney from Huntsville, Alabama, who just got back her AP government and politics exam score. Five out of five, so thank you guys. And who's also about to sit down to watch the Women's World Cup final. This podcast was recorded at... 6.22 p.m. on Thursday, the 11th of July. Things may have changed by the time you hear this, but hopefully the USA will be the champions. And they are the champions. They did. They won. It was awesome. And there was a ticker tape parade. They made it look easy, and that was the hardest part. But you know what? There should have been a ticker tape parade for her five out of five on an AP exam. That was pretty impressive. Very impressive. Very impressive. I can't do that. I've never gotten a five. No, no. I I don't think I did. Hey there, it's the NPR Politics Podcast. I'm Tamara Keith. I cover the White House. I'm Aisha Roscoe. I also cover the White House. And I'm Domenico Montanaro, political editor. And President Trump is backing down on his effort to get a citizenship question added to the 2020 census. He appeared in the Rose Garden a short time ago to make this announcement. Of course, he did not get up there and say he was backing down. He actually got up and said, I am not backing down. I was going to say, it didn't sound like he was backing down. No. Today, I'm here to say we are not backing down on our effort to determine the citizenship status of the United States population. I stand before you to outline new steps my administration is taking to ensure that citizenship is counted so that we know how many citizens we have in the United States. Make sense? Aisha, you were there? I was there, and it was, uh, just to set the scene a little bit, it was very cloudy, thunderstorms, uh, and we were out in the Rose Garden, and President Trump was out there with Attorney General William Barr and with uh, Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross. So, So basically he said that he would not pursue getting the citizenship question on the 2020 census. What the president and Attorney General Barr admitted was there just wasn't time to do that. They basically said that there would be too many legal challenges if they tried to come up with another reasoning for putting the question on the census. You may remember that the Supreme Court said that for now they couldn't add the question. So instead, President Trump said that he was going to try to get this citizenship information another way. I am hereby ordering every department and agency in the federal government to provide the Department of Commerce with all requested records regarding the number of citizens and non-citizens in our country. They must furnish all legally accessible records in their possession immediately. Now, what Hansi Lo Wang, who is our colleague who has been covering the census very closely for about a year, said is that the Commerce Department already has the ability to get all this information, so he doesn't really understand what's new here. No, and the fact of the matter is, this is what the president wound up doing is coming to the conclusion that everybody else did two weeks ago when the Supreme Court came out with its ruling that said that this had to go back to the lower courts. The administration was free to come up with a new uh, reasoning that, quote, wasn't contrived, as Chief Justice John Roberts said about the prior reasoning, which would have been really difficult to do because they would have had to go against their prior reasoning. Uh, Once that happened, all of us looked at each other and said, well, there's just not enough time to get this on the census. Everyone knew that, apparently, except for the president until today. And and it was interesting because uh, Barr, he said that uh, the media was speculating and hysterical. And and when they said that uh, President Trump was going to try to uh, add the question 
via uh, an executive order. But the reason why there was all this speculation is because President Trump tweeted last week uh, that the news reports about the Commerce Commerce Department dropping his quest to put the citizenship question on the census is fake. And we are absolutely moving forward as we must. So he is the one who stirred the pot. And even his own Justice Department wasn't really clear on what he was talking about then. And even people around the White House weren't clear. But later it became clear that they were going to try to put the question on the 2020 census. It never really made sense how they were going to do that logistically. But they kept but Trump himself said that maybe they would do an addendum. That was Trump. Well, and even as President Trump was tweeting that thing, the Commerce Department had started printing the census. They said there was a deadline of July 1st that they needed to get this material out there because it takes a really long time to gather all of this information. But I want to say something else about uh, this executive order because the president is saying, hey, all these federal agencies, give us all of your potential documentation and databases to say, let's count how many citizens are in the country. Guess what? That's exactly what the Census Bureau and the Commerce Department said could have been done last year instead of going to the Supreme Court with this. And then on Friday of last week, we had the president say that uh, he wanted to do this because you had to have an accurate count so that you could, um, you know, for redistricting. That's not at all what the reason was that the administration used to go before the Supreme Court. So he was coming up with something completely new and something that a lot of people who were against having this question on the census thought was the actual motivation in the first place. Let's just go back to basics really quickly. What is the census supposed to count and how is that supposed to be used? Well, it's supposed to every 10 years have an accurate count of all persons residing in the United States. This is not a question that's supposed to be about citizens only in the United States. Now, some conservatives don't like that idea because that gives more resources, more political power to places that have more people in the country who are not citizens. Is this kind of a pattern for Trump? Or it seems like this is kind of a pattern for Trump, right, Tam? You mean declaring victory in the face of defeat? Well, yes. Yeah. So he does that a lot. And he's done that most of his life, you know, from his business bankruptcies, where he said that it wasn't a loss after all, to the Affordable Care Act, where he came out and said, yeah, okay, I know that our Republican congressional effort to repeal the Affordable Care Act didn't didn't work and it failed. But, you know, maybe that's good after all. Perhaps the best thing that could happen is exactly what happened today because we'll end up with a truly great health care bill in the future after this mess known as Obamacare explodes. And that's really different than past presidents, obviously, because most of them kind of take their ball and go home and move on to other things they can win, right? Right. But President Trump does not take his ball and go home exactly because he keeps pushing on it. He's still trying to repeal the Affordable Care Act now through a court process rather than through legislation uh, and take the the border wall. He um, shut the government down to try to get funding for mm-hmm. the border wall, didn't get that funding and then did a an emergency declaration to go around Congress to try to fund uh, border wall building. It's held up in court in some areas, but not in others. There is some wall being built and he can say that it is. This is, as you say, so different from George W. Bush, who failed on Social Security and moved on. Bill Clinton, who failed on health care. Uh, President Obama, who failed on immigration and guns. And instead of returning to past defeats, they kind of just moved on to try to 
make progress in areas where they thought they could get some wins. And mitigate the political damage so that they could, you know, keep whatever political capital they have and try to apply it to something else. I think Trump's political calculus is different, and it's that he wants to be seen as fighting, and he always says... What I promises made, promises kept. And he wants to say that every promise he's ever made, he has kept. And so I think for him, it's more important to say, I did do it in a, if you look at it in a, a very particular way, basically the way he wants you to look at it. I actually, I fought or I fought as hard as I possibly could. And those horrible courts, they just stopped me. But I really, uh, but I fought as hard and I'm still fighting for you. All right, we are going to take a quick break. And when we get back, the 2020 Democratic presidential candidates present their plans to deal with racial inequality. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Gelmar, maker of CLR. For some of life's mucky moments, there's CLR. From soap scum to bicycle rust, CLR gets rid of household grime using natural ingredients, not harsh chemicals. It even carries the EPA's Safer Choice seal. Use it to dissolve calcium, lime, and rust all around your house. Go to clrbrands.com today to learn more about how to keep your piece of the planet muck-free. CLR, making the world a little cleaner. Support also comes from the new podcast, Overheard at National Geographic. It's a show where listeners get to fall down the rabbit hole with one of the real-life explorers hanging around National Geographic's headquarters. People who are swimming with whales, summiting Everest, and traveling to the edges of our big, wild, beautiful world. You've known what National Geographic looks like. Now hear what it sounds like. Overheard at National Geographic. Listen in, starting June 11th. Next time on Rough Translation, the feeling you get when you quit your job and try to start something new. You're a loser. You're worthless. An entrepreneur from Mexico faces down that taboo and accidentally launches a global community that celebrates stories of failure. The mistakes I was making was part of my journey. Travel with Rough Translation from NPR. Listen and subscribe. And we're back. And a huge welcome back to Asma Khalid. Hey, Asma. Hey there. Welcome back from maternity leave. Welcome back. Do I still look the same? You do look the same. How you feeling, though? I'm feeling a little rough, you know, <laughs> a little cold. Oh, <laughs> Plus, we moved. There's a lot of changes going on in a very short amount of time, but I am yeah. glad to be back. So let's just dive right back into this. We're going to spend some time now talking about 2020. And we're starting with Pete Buttigieg. Uh, This morning, the South Bend mayor was on NPR's Morning Edition, and he released new details about his plan to combat racial inequality. Here's how he described it. What we've learned is that the inequities that we have in our country were put in intentionally by uh, generations and sometimes centuries of racist policy. They're not going to go away just because you replace a racist system with a neutral one. We need to intentionally invest in health, in home ownership, in entrepreneurship, uh, in uh, access to democracy. If we don't do these things, we shouldn't be surprised that racial inequality persists because inequalities compound. And Asma, he's calling this the Douglas Plan? That's right, after abolitionist Frederick Douglas. And he's really talking about sort of a, a huge change. He feels like we need structural changes to, to the ways that we deal around with race. And I mean, look, this is a really 
ambitious, comprehensive plan. It talks about racial gerrymandering. It talks about abolishing the death penalty. It talks about improving, you know, fair housing for African-American communities, uh, more money to historically black colleges and universities. It, it's a sort of a, a big, broad, comprehensive plan. But in some ways, it's also kind of this like intellectual, philosophical document in the sense that I feel like it's very ambitious, but it doesn't necessarily maybe get into as many dollars and cents as we've seen from some of the other candidates. Well, and that's sort of his style, though, right? He has often said, like, we, we can talk about plans later. Yeah, but he's he's making some serious targets on this. Um, you know, he outlined some of this previously uh, a couple of weeks ago at the uh, Rainbow Push Coalition, which is headed by Jesse Jackson. And, you know, some of what he mentioned this morning are things that he said there, like, for example, uh, mandating 25 percent of government contracts, for example, going to minority owned businesses. He also talked about um, trying to reduce the incarceration rate by 50 percent. And one of the things that he said that was would lead to that is by legalizing marijuana. Mm-hmm. Yes, mm-hmm. And, and eliminating incarceration for drug possession at the federal level. So Aisha, he is a mayor of a mid-sized city, South Bend, Indiana, and he has been having some really serious issues at home. So he's had issues at in South Bend. Just recently, a white police officer uh, shot and killed a black man. Uh, this has been an ongoing issue with uh, between the community, uh, the black community in South Bend, uh, not trusting police officers and feeling like they are the victims of violence at the hands of police officers. To quickly piggyback on what you're saying, Aisha, also, I mean, he was criticized for firing the city's first black police chief. So part of his relationship is so tense because that's one of the the things that happened very early on in his tenure as mayor there in South Bend. And, And so that's the issue. And he was asked about this at the debate. And what he said was he couldn't get it done. That he he that this was important and that he worked on it, but he just couldn't get it done when it came to uh, hiring more black police officers. So I think when you look at a plan like this, and this is very ambitious, there are going to be questions for all for all candidates about how they can get it done. But I think particularly for him is, okay. what evidence do you have that you would be able to get this done? You were the mayor of a town and this is a town with specific issues dealing with race and you weren't able to get it done there. So how are you going to get it done on a national level? Well, and let's make something very clear. African-American voters are a very important part of the Democratic electorate. Yeah. And he's polling close to zero with them. So, you know, the fact of the matter is that's the whole reason why he's doing some of this, because these candidates need a path to the nomination. And, you know, once you get out of Iowa and New Hampshire, which are pretty lily white, you know, you're going to South Carolina, which is 61 percent African-American voters in Democratic primary. Uh, And then you have the entirety of the South, uh, which when you're looking at Southern voters in a Democratic primary, they're overwhelmingly African-American. So for Pete Buttigieg to have a path out of the early states, he's going to need to be able to win over black voters. And as Aisha mentioned, when he's been in the news for racial tensions in his hometown, that makes it difficult for him because he hasn't been otherwise known uh, very widely on a national scale before getting into this race. Now, he is not the only candidate who is talking about issues of racial inequity. 
Yeah, exactly. I mean, we've heard a number of plans from candidates this cycle talk about plans, um, maybe not perhaps as comprehensive direct appeals. I think this is really a, a sort of a broad-based plan that's a very direct appeal. He, he sort of sees it as a, an agenda for black folks in the country. But I will say that you saw Kamala Harris come out with a plan recently around housing discrimination. She's committing to investing $100 billion to provide down payment assistance to millions of people who live in historically redlined districts, which which means that basically there were neighborhoods in which a number of African-American families just could not get loans. And, you know, Elizabeth Warren, she's come out with a plan to boost the wages of women of color. She's also promising a set of executive actions that would deny federal contracts to companies that have a poor record of diversity. She, she's talked about investing a, a bucket load of money, $7 billion, into a small business fund to help entrepreneurs of color. I mean, we could go kind of right. on and on, but I feel like there's a whole bunch of plans. And I think what seems to be different this this time around with these campaigns is that they are they do seem to be specifically making a case to black voters about what they will do for them Mm -hmm. but there I think has been a feeling and what you will hear from folks is that the black vote at times seems to have been taken for granted and now black voters are demanding more specific action than just kind of a general uh, will rising tides will lift all boats type thing Let's make a hard turn here uh, and talk about another thing on the campaign trail. Um, We have started to get numbers, fundraising numbers for the second quarter of this year. And fundraising numbers matter because they tell you a lot about the level of support that a candidate has. Um, And and Domenico, I'm hoping you can run us through the numbers. But just to start, uh, Mayor Pete Buttigieg is in the lead by the math, with mm-hmm. $24.8 million in that second quarter. Yeah, and just to run you through some of the top people, like you said, Buttigieg at $24.8 million, former Vice President Joe Biden, $21.5 million, uh, Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren, $19.1 million, which was a very good quarter for her, beat expectations. Uh, Bernie Sanders, the Vermont Senator, at $18 million, and Senator Kamala Harris of California at $12 million. And that's about all we know for the people who've uh, raised a significant chunk of money. You know, the thing that's really surprising about Buttigieg here is his fundraising numbers are out of sync with his poll numbers. His poll numbers are okay. You know, he's in the bottom of the top tier, you could say. Mm -hmm. But his fundraising is tops. Is that because Buttigieg has been able to win over some people with uh, real amounts of money, maybe in Silicon Valley and some of that? I I would say, you know, part of it also is that he has a really well-connected network. I've been talking to a number of people uh, just on background who kind of know him from his past. I mean, this is a guy who went to Harvard. He worked at this very lucrative consulting firm, McKinsey, and he was a Rhodes Scholar. He studied at Oxford. And people will say, like, he has this lucrative network that he's able to tap into that perhaps some of the other candidates do not have access to as much. Yeah, he's speaking to the donor base. The donors love him. They love when they hear him talk. Um, And it's not the same as, you know, he hasn't quite caught on more broadly. Um, And it's not that his poll numbers are terrible. They're pretty good. But again, we were talking about African-Americans. That has been one source of of a problem for him is being able to win over voters of color. One other interesting thing, Asma, is the they're sort of the candidates who are doing big dollar fundraisers along with their small dollar fundraising, Mm -hmm. like Buttigieg and Biden. And then there are people like Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren. 
Yeah, who, who made a are, very different choice. Who, who exactly, who are not doing those high dollar fundraisers, who, who, you know, Elizabeth Warren really publicly made this statement that she was not going to engage in that. And her campaign's argument is that this allows us more time to do other things. It allows us to take a selfie with every last person at, at an organizing event, right? And so this is her argument that it's been able to help bring in the small dollar money. Um, and, and, you know, her campaign will see this as a way that they're really building grassroots organizing strength and they're energizing people to build a stronger long-term campaign. Um, I guess we'll see how that all plays out in the, in the months ahead. But so far this cycle, it seems like she was able to do pretty successful with that. That strategy. Well, and I mean, significantly, she was able to beat out Bernie Sanders, who mm-hmm. is competing with her in that progressive lane and who's also, you know, going after the $27 donation, right? That's his whole thing. Hers was $28 per contribution. And I don't think his was actually 27 this year. This time? Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think, I think it, it was a little lower. It was actually lower. Right? It was like $20 yeah. in the first quarter. Anyway. I mean, there is, I think we're going to see an ongoing kind of competition between Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren as this campaign heats up. We are already seeing that competition, I would say, in the poll numbers. And I think we're going to c- continue to see um, uh, a competition between the two of them for some similar voters. Well, it's not not all, but I, some. Now, Aisha, we also got fundraising numbers from someone else. Yes, President Trump and the Republican Party. Uh, now, these were Whopper numbers. Uh, can I get a Whopper? Is I think a Whopper w- is a word. Whopper? Does he like Whoppers? It's not just a burger. <laughs> does he serve oh, I them? think he does like Whoppers, yeah. but he, it is a Whopper of a number. A McDonald's You're right. guy, I, though, I like right? Whoppers, too, but yeah, I'm not big on Big Macs, but I, I'm, I'm, I digress. $105 million yeah. in the that second a quarter. That's a lot of money. That's a, a lot, lot of, money. of money. And that's a, a mix. Of that is a mix of small donors and large donors. It does combine the Republican Party with President Trump. But guess what? The Republican Party and President Trump are combined. Their operations, they share space. They, they are mean, a combined operation. This is so operation. much more money than if you add up the amount that Buttigieg, Biden, Warren, Sanders, and Harris got collectively. That's amazing. You know, it's not quite apples to apples because they are able to take in above the contribution limits that a okay. normal campaign would take because the Trump Victory Fund and the RNC can take in all that money and combine them. So he can go to an event and say, give me, you know, $5,000 and like it can go to both they can split the you know above the first twenty eight hundred dollars will then go leftovers can go to the RNC. But that is the advantage that a president has who's running for re-election. The Democrats don't get to do that until they pick a nominee next year. Right. And 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 but just to compare, so President uh, Obama's re-election campaign reported about forty six million dollars in the second quarter of twenty eleven. Wow. So this this is a lot of money, and I mean this was the campaign, but Trump raised a lot of money, and and the Republicans did. Before we go to can't let it go, we have one more piece of business to take care of. Uh, we have lost a candidate. Well, no. And the first uh-huh. to drop out was Eric Swalwell, bye, bye. California congressman here. from the East Bay of California. This makes perfect sense. This is great music for it. I hope we do hear this every single time. Oh, we are going to hear this every there single time. two dozen candidates. And Tom Steyer got in to the race. <laughs> Meaning they you add out. what you left. Yes. They did a little like, Californian. They, they, did a, they, they completely balanced each other out. And, you know, what you guys hear when you go on the campaign trail, people are saying they just feel like there are too many candidates. We should explain. So Tom Steyer is this billionaire philanthropist who initially had said he was not going to run for president. He was 
gave this very public announcement that he was instead going to focus his efforts elsewhere, focus his efforts on impeaching the president. Um, but he's now had a change of heart, apparently, right. and he's yeah. going to be running for president. Eric Swalwell's big line from the debate was, pass the torch. Joe Biden was right when he said it was time to pass the torch to a new generation of Americans 32 years ago. He's still right today. If we're going to solve the issues of automation, pass the torch. If we're going to solve the issues of climate chaos, pass the torch. If we're going to solve it to Tom Steyer. Sort of. Yeah. <laughs> well, look, he tried to say that, you know, restricting gun violence was his top issue. You know, he launched just miles from Parkland, uh, where there was that mass shooting at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School. And he tried to run on, uh, you know, getting guns out of schools in particular and to have fewer guns in American society. Um, He did raise the issue, but it wasn't able to be something, obviously, that he felt could propel him further with two dozen candidates in the field. All right. Well, bye, 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 Eric Swalwell. Bye, bye. Bye, bye. Bye. All right, we're going to leave this here for now. Um, And when we get back, it is time for Can't Let It Go. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Zoom. When you can't be there in person, Zoom. Zoom is used by millions to connect face-to-face, across town or around the world. Share files, video, anything, and connect through any device, desktop, laptop, tablet, smartphone, or conference room system. Zoom video conferencing, Zoom rooms, Zoom video webinars, and Zoom phone lets you do business at the speed of Zoom. Visit Zoom online to set up your free account today. Meet happy with Zoom. Support also comes from BetterHelp. BetterHelp offers licensed professional counselors who specialize in issues such as depression, stress, anxiety, and more. Connect with your professional counselor in a safe and private online environment at your convenience. Get help at your own time and your own pace. Schedule secure video or phone sessions, plus chat and text with your therapist. Visit BetterHelp.com politics to learn more and get 10% off your first month. This is Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air from WHYY and NPR. We do long-form interviews with journalists breaking the big news stories and with the authors, filmmakers, and musicians behind the best in pop culture. So listen and subscribe. And we're back. And it's time to end the show like we do every week with Can't Let It Go, where we talk about one thing we cannot stop thinking about, politics or otherwise. Domenico, what can't you let go of? Well, you know, in presidential campaigns, slogans are really important, right? I mean, President Trump has been struggling with this. Is it make America great again, again? Is it keep America great? Great. Hashtag CAG. CAG. You know, I don't think he really loves it. But anyway, the point is someone this week decided to make it go around social media that we could all have our own 2020, um, you know, slogans. And the way this works, and I saw it from our producer Barton's IG story, by the way, Instagram for the older people who don't really know. (laughs) Um, And it's your last name. So everyone should do this now together. Okay. Okay. It's your last name. 2020, okay, and then whatever your last text message was, <laughs> that's your slogan. So, Asma, I'm putting you on the spot. What was your very last text message? You have to tell us whatever it was, not one you select. Khalid. Otherwise, he'll wake up early for food. That's <laughs> 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 an explanation of I have a newborn child yes, yes, who's yes. currently at home with my husband. <laughs> uh-huh. Aisha, you're next. Roscoe. 
I'm planning to get box braids, but I'm going to have to get the bigger ones. I don't have the patience. <laughs> That's <laughs> a long one. It's good, though. I'm getting, I want to get braids this summer, box braids. You look them up, Google them. And I don't want to get the ones that are really tiny because it takes a long time to, to take out. So I was talking to friends about how long it, they take to, you, if this, is a, if this is a black girl thing. Uh-huh. You take hours, like 10 hours or something. I don't want, I don't have time for that. Yeah. Okay. Keith 2020 just trying to understand whether it is a memorandum and what the legal theory is (laughs) (laughs) that's a good one though that That that, sounds like that sounds like you covered the Hillary Clinton campaign (laughs) (laughs) Um, this is just sad mine is rather unfortunate mine is Montanaro 2020 I will do my best (laughs) what I am not kidding. I will it. I will it do it my best. You're like doing some weird Italian things. This was just an absurd. Like it just happened to be that as soon as I saw Barton's uh, IG story, I was like, I wonder what my last text was, and then I saw that and I started dying because I was like. <laughs> Okay, so the backstory to that was I was making dinner and uh, I was trying to just jokingly say, like, because I was putting together a meal and I'm Italian, so I like to cook. And I, said, <laughs> they were like, I hope it's good. I said, I will do my best. That's your personality too is a political political yeah. message. Yeah. yeah, it's a dad yeah. joke. I'm not promising. I'm just gonna yeah. do my best. I'm not making promises I can't keep, but I will do my best. <laughs> All right, Tam, what can't you let go of? We were up in New Hampshire to interview uh, two candidates over the weekend for the NPR Politics Podcast. One of those interviews is already posted, the one with Tulsi Gabbard. The the one with Amy Klobuchar will post on Monday morning. So we are going to this town of Franconia to follow uh, Tulsi Gabbard in a parade. And we go into this market to go to the bathroom, get some snacks. We're standing in line to go to the bathroom. And one of Amy Klobuchar's aides walks up and gets in line for the bathroom, too. Small town, New Hampshire. So then we walk out of the market and we're like, hey, there's like two dudes. They look kind of like campaign people. They don't look like they're going to a parade. Oh, wait, one of them is Seth Moulton. And he's running for president. So, like, I just couldn't stop laughing. I was like, okay, welcome to New Hampshire. You just, like, almost run into one in a parking lot. And then we're following Gabbard in the parade. And what do you know? Amy Klobuchar is also marching in the same parade. And we're like, all right. We're just, we're like, we can't, we can't get, escape the presidential candidates. Aisha, what can't you let go of? So uh, what I what I can't let go of this week is you, you, I work at the White House. You do too, Tam. And oh, yes. people think it's very glamorous, but we have some real world problems here. And <laughs> <laughs> they may be first world problems, but they are real. They're real world problems. And on Monday, it rained a lot in D.C. And there was a leak at the White House and not the normal leaks that we get, but there was just... A flooding in the basement where reporters uh, have offices. There was a lot of water coming up in the basement. And I think they had to get like, you know, things out to try to dry out. It wasn't in, luckily it was not in the NPR booth. It The NPR booth was unscathed. Wow. But, but it's know. an old building. Uh, a big part of it is underground. Sure. Uh, it was last updated many years ago. The press area was last updated Maybe it's several years ago. And before and before those of you decide to email in or tweet at us that 
it's because DC's built on a swamp. That's actually a myth. Asma, what can't you let go of? All right. Well, for those of you who uh, are familiar with the podcast Embedded uh, that we have, that uh, our our colleague Kelly McEvers has been doing, she's been doing um, some work looking at Mitch McConnell. And there's an episode she has out that's new that uh, sort of a nugget of it caught my eye. Um, In the 1990s, Mitch McConnell got a $1,000 campaign check from the one real estate developer and author of the best-selling book, The Art of the Deal, Donald Trump. And um, he returned that check. Wow, really? So Trump at this point in time had been, you know, um, kind of on the verge of bankruptcy. He wasn't doing too well financially, even though he he had previously been, you know, on, on this list of very wealthy folks. And so McConnell had been getting a lot of heat about getting this money. And so he, he had never met Trump, but he said, quote, well, I thank you for your contribution. I have noticed several stories in the last few weeks about your financial difficulties. He wrote this all in a letter. <laughs> Although I am certain you will recover, I have decided to return your contribution of $1,000 because it appears you may need the money more than I do right now. Damn. Ooh, well, he did recover. He's president. He did. And Mitch McConnell is doing his bidding. Well, well I'm sure Trump would like the story to be talked about a lot more. I'm sure he loves <laughs> the story of McConnell giving him the money back and saying that he needed it more than him. I'm sure he would love that story. But it just to me highlighted like how awkward that relationship has been for so many years. Yeah, that's the... Uh, hmm. I wonder, does Trump remember that, though? He probably does. Well, he right? does now. Well, he apparently the White, House did not, the White House did not respond to NPR's request for comment. <laughs> All right, that is a wrap for today. And a reminder that we're hitting the road. And we'll be in Boulder, Colorado for a live show on September 20th. And we'll be doing another live show in Washington, D.C. on November 8th. Tickets are on sale right now, so head over to nprpresents.org. I'm Tamara Keith. I cover the White House. I'm Asma Khalid, political reporter. I'm Aisha Roscoe. I also cover the White House. And I'm Domenico Montanaro, political editor. And thank you for listening to the NPR Politics Podcast. Podcast.